Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We're here today with Liz Haney and Russell Hedrick from, uh, what is it? What is it you guys are with these days? Soil Region, uh, Region Mills, and Heritage Ground. Oh, nice. Yeah, we don't like to start just one business. Triple threats. <laughs> Got to have clusters. Got to have clusters. Yeah. So, uh, so, Russell, tell us a little bit about yourself. I don't, I don't know you at all. Where, uh, where are you at and uh, where are you from? I'm a first-generation farmer in Hickory, North Carolina. Um, we're about an hour above Charlotte, about an hour below Asheville. So we're right at the foothill of the mountains and, um, started farming back in 2012 and just grew our operation from there, used regenerative practices, um, direct marketing, vertical integration, and, uh, really trying to be outside of the normal, normal farmer in the commodity market. I'm, I'm going to. I really want to circle back later and, and get into how you came to regenerative agriculture, but, uh, let's introduce Liz. Um, Liz, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I live in Salado, Texas. I'm a soil scientist and ecosystem scientist. I got into this in a kind of a roundabout way. I started working for a soil testing lab um, for one of my bartending clients, actually. So uh, that got me down this whole path. And uh, now here I am doing regenerative ag and very excited about it. Bartending for one of your soil testing clients. Or, uh, yeah, no, see, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't ever told that story before. One of my regulars had a soil testing lab. Oh, nice. At the bar I worked at and gave me a job. Yeah, running it. That, that's fun. You know, I, I suppose, I suppose a lot of people have heard of the Haney test. Is, uh, did you have anything to do with that? Uh, yeah, it, it was Rick's brainchild, but um, we worked in the same lab together in the same facility. And so um, I helped, you know, bounce the ideas off, write the papers and helped in the lab a little bit. And so it was there along the whole journey with that. So it, it sounds like you kind of came to a, like agriculture and science a little bit late in life. Yes. Yeah. I grew up in West Texas in Midland, Texas, out in the desert where it's, you know, like one cow per thousand acres because they can't grow anything there. Um, it's all been eroded away, dust bowl scenario happening every day. So I wasn't around agriculture at all. My parents weren't involved in agriculture. So um, it just happened by chance, thank goodness, and uh, got into farming. You know, I don't farm, but got into the, the ag business later in life. How did you come to realize that soil was so important? So one, I really enjoyed like working in the lab with it. Um, I, I loved learning about it. We were doing all chemical analyses at that time. Um, after a while though, it, you know, 
a lot of people kept coming to her house and talking about regenerative agriculture and soil. And, and while I had been involved in the research aspect and um, in, in the analysis aspect, I wasn't as like excited about it as I was until after I realized that, wait a minute, this might like save the planet for my kids. So now I have little kids, all of this stuff just clicked in me at one time. And I started to realize that, okay, if I don't start really advocating for the soil biology, regenerative ag, the farmers that are involved in it, then, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not really doing my life and I'm not doing anything. That's, that's, that's awesome. So how many kids do you have? Tell us about your kids a little bit. I have two kids, Maggie and Molly and Molly is eight and Maggie is about to turn 12 and they are somewhat soil nerds, not as much as me, but, um, they're super great kids and we get to take them with us on all these fun adventures. We go on meeting all of our, our farmers and introducing them to the, the world of ag. It, it seems like you guys are always posting pictures or somewhere new almost every week. I, I'd like to be somewhere new every week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's talk about Ag Soil Regen. What, uh, tell me all about it. What are you guys doing these days? Okay. So um, I started Soil Regen in 2019 and started putting together events and stuff, then put it on the back burner when I went to go work for, uh, you know, industry corporations, had to set it aside for a while. And then this past summer, um, we all actually got to start seeing each other again after COVID. And so um, Russell sent us a text one day and said, this is what we need to do. We need to revamp to a region, get it up and going. So went home, quit my corporate job. And here we are um, getting it kicked back up again with the real focus that, that we want to do education and consulting not only on a general basis where someone comes to a conference and learns about how to, you know, the principles of regenerative ag and, right. and maybe how to do a little bit on the land, but really take it all the way to their farm and help them all along the process. So how, how would you define regenerative agriculture? Cause it's been defined a ton of times, but I want to hear your definition. Uh, trying to farm as best as you can in nature's image while in your context. I think that's my favorite so far. <laughs> it's not prescriptive. <laughs> no, right? yeah. no, no. We don't need to be hardcore about that. <laughs> right. I want to throw the same question at Russell. So what, what defines regenerative agriculture for you, Russell? Um, on a personal level, regenerative agriculture for me is any practice that farmers can do to make the land better than how they found it. Um, I, don't, I don't think it necessarily has to be one practice or another or cutting anything out. I think as long as you're making the ground better where it makes more nutritional food or whether it's simply growing crops with less fertilizer or less chemicals, anything that we can do to make the ground sustainable. I think sustainable was a buzzword before it's time. I think regenerative makes it sustainable. We have to regenerate back to a place where we can be sustainable because it's not yeah. sustainable right now. Yeah, that's that's exactly how I feel about it. So the revamp that Liz was talking about, it sounds like you drove that. What uh, was that a COVID inspired thing or did it just come to you in the middle of the night? It all, you know, the, the joke between me and Liz, um, it all started with a road trip in bourbon. Um, I, I, I think COVID really put a 
a damper on everybody's mood across the country and in, in every industry. Um, right. And and simply getting back out and you know the sunshine being back on your face and getting to see friends and really looking at how farmers have struggled even more economically um, over the past year with you know we had the same issue on our farm it was hard to get what we needed um it was hard to get what we needed on our farm to operate and it was hard for farmers to get information for them to to change their operations into a better way and i guess i guess i really just wanted to put something together to where we could help farmers and i think that's our our main focus is farmers are first and that it hasn't been that way for a long time so liz what or, or Russell, what are some of the events that you all have put on lately and, uh, and what kind of reception have you gotten? Yeah, so we're just getting ramped up, uh, starting to put on events. And our first one is going to be, is it November 15th and 16th, I believe, in Pratt, Kansas. And then we have a really big one scheduled uh, December 6th and 7th called Inventively the Big Soil Health Event um, in Iowa. So um those are the, the two bigger ones that we're, that we're getting going. Um, we really just started putting all this together, um, all three businesses, about August. So um, we're trying to do three years worth of work in about three months. But um, so far, the reception has been great. People are very supportive. I think that farmers first understand that we're here because of them and for them and that we're not here just you know to toot our own horns and 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 I think that people really are responding to the gene of that so that event that you mentioned in Pratt in November this episode mm-hmm. will definitely be out by then um and that's Pratt's my backyard and I was just okay. there the yeah other day. I, I know so I'm going to definitely try to cruise up there and uh and see what that's all about so what what kind of things can I expect at that uh, program Okay, so um, this is being hosted by uh, Great Plains Regeneration in cooperation with Prairie Food and Soil Region. And so the first day is going to be um, soil health discussions. Um, There'll be some keynote speakers. People will get a lot of information about regenerative ag and practices. And then the second day is more of a workshop, um, more in depth on how to do the soil health practices and how to apply prairie food and what it does. A lot about soil testing. Uh, there'll be lots of great food as well. Uh, barbecue cooked by Region Ag Lab and Lance Gunderson. So it's, it's, it's gonna be a great fun event for people to really get together and, and, and learn the boots on the ground kind of information. They- you had me sold at soil health discussions, but you know, the food yeah. sealed the deal. Yeah, food, barbecue, meat. That- <laughs> That's how to get people to show up, though. I mean, sometimes you got to say, "Hey, meat, barbecue, yeah, prime rib." We're gonna have regenerative. We're gonna have regenerative turkey grown by Sarah Barbel there. So, who is our also our business partner? Awesome, awesome. I'm looking forward to that. So, uh, before we before I get away from it, where can we go to find out more? Um, information about that event in Pratt and I'll make sure I put a link in the show notes page. Okay, yeah. So if you go to a Great Plains Regeneration website. It's on there. And then it's also listed. There's a link on um, Soil Region website, which is uh, agsoilregion.com. Okay, perfect. So this this new thing that you guys have going on, this trailer, I really want to know about the trailer. Whose idea was the trailer? So 
essentially the way it started was a a company and we'll be nice and leave it at that mm-hmm. um a company made an offer to farmers that if they grew regenerative grains, that they were going to build a massive processing facility and farmers could take their grains to this, this facility and then they would be ground up into regenerative products and then sold and marketed that way. And they were offered a, a very small premium, just say 50 cents or a dollar a bushel more to bring their grains to that facility. And the problem is, is even though it is regenerative grains, that's no different than our current model system. Um, truck your grains halfway across the country or to the local elevator, you may get a small premium, they may dock you. And at the end of the day, the farmer is still taking all the risk and essentially companies are farming the farmer. I, I guess that's my saying that, you know, I don't, I'm tired of people farming the farmer, it's time for the farmers to make money. Mm-hmm. And after that idea came out and then those people didn't go through with it, um, I was just like, well, I'll just build it in a trailer. And everybody's like, you can't do that. That won't work. And I talked to Liz and Sarah about it and they've always been supportive. I, I think we support each other very well. And they were like, all right, let's do it. Um, so we figured out what trailer size we needed, how much weight was going to be towed around. We Everybody thought this was going to be in a tractor trailer. Um, this is in a eight by 20 car trailer, you know, an enclosed trailer that you can pull behind a pickup truck. Um, oh, we, yeah. Yeah. I'm so trying I'm, to picture it. So sorry. Yeah. yeah uh, yes. Essentially, just imagine an eight by 20 car trailer that is now going to house a milling operation that anybody with a regular driver's license can, you know, pull this thing yeah. around. And I was picturing and, an 18 wheeler. Yeah, no, yeah, it's it's not big at all. Um, And we can process grits and cornmeal, we can do flour, we can do extracted flour, we can do cracks, we can do berries, we can do gluten free. Um, Essentially, any product that you can buy in a grocery store, we can make in this trailer. We're even learning how to do like wet grinding where we can make masa for tortillas or chips. Mm. Yeah, that's Nothing says, nothing says love like somebody bringing you some tacos. Yes. Um, tacos so, love. Exactly. Yeah. Um, every day, everybody should, every, every day should be Taco Tuesday. But um, I don't know. It was just something that I was, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm a gearhead. I like welding. I like building things that nobody's done before. And especially if somebody tells me we can't do something, it's going to happen. Oh, hell yeah. Good. I like him already. <laughs> so is this like, is, is it a community type? type offering then you you provide the regenerative food for this community and they just have they have the right infrastructure to haul it around so every farmer already has at least some form of grain storage whether it be short term or long term um there's there's not any massive equipment that farmers have to buy to be a part of this meal um right now we have 18 farmers i believe in 14 states um there is a one-time upfront fee for farmers to join, and that covers us building the e-commerce, the websites. We're putting their information on there. And, you know, a, a word that I learned from Liz was identity preservation. Um, nobody will have that the way that we do it. So essentially, our front of our bags will be all the same with a consistent brand, but the back of the bags will actually have the information of the farmer who grew that specific grain. And then the customer can go to our website and check out their bios and videos. Um, they can check out the information about the, that specific farmer and how their food was actually grown in that bag. What can you not do 
with with grains in that trailer? What can you not do with your mill that that say a big stationary mill could or a big commercial mill could? Um, honestly, the only difference between what a big commercial mill can do and what we can do is would be speed. But speed does not always equal quality. Um, we are using a pink granite stone mill. Um, I have a friend that actually his family built some of the oldest mills in the Southeast, some of them that are still standing for 200 years now. And um, he actually helped us with our grinding process on our farm that we've done since 2017. And uh, we're focused more on the quality of the grain and the quality of the grind versus putting out massive quantities and trying to hit box stores. That's, that's not something... We're not trying to make something cheap and hit a box store and, and try to sell massive quantity. We're looking at the return on investment to the farmer. You're trying to help people get that, get a specialty product out there for a niche to make a significant amount of money on a very small amount of quantity of, of product. Exactly. Exactly. It, so, I mean, go ahead, Liz. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, to, to give you an idea, um, I mean, Sarah is very good at putting together our spreadsheets and our information and the average return on investment to the farmer after after we mill it, after we bag it, even taking into consideration their operating costs to grow it on their farm, just regular whole wheat flour, um, their return on investment is somewhere in the ballpark of about four to five thousand dollars net per acre. Um, it, it would take you know almost eighty to hundred acres of commodity wheat for them to to have the same return on investment as one acre of ground wheat, and then. You know, corn is even more exponentially to, to grow a hundred bushel an acre of non-GMO heirloom corn. Um, you know, their profit margin, their net is somewhere in the ballpark of about fifteen to eighteen thousand um, dollars. And we don't expect farmers to go sell a hundred acres of this, but if you can replace two hundred acres of risk, which you know, in today's commodity prices and where where our input prices are, it costs you almost ten thousand dollars to grow that two hundred acres versus $500 or $400, um, there's a huge risk benefit there as well that we're reducing risk while also increasing profitability. And, you know, I, I think input costs are something that's really important to, to think about because, you know, just in the last year, a lot of complex supply chains are, are failing. And mm -hmm. Complex supply chain failure has been on my mind, especially uh, we're just coming off the heels of Facebook being down for a couple hours and I don't know. There's a bunch of people that thought the world seemed to end, but uh, <laughs> yeah, they did. there's nothing wrong with a little enforced digital detox for 3.5 million users of Facebook. Anyway, you know, like things that are big and complex are prone to failure. And this is, this is just another way to add resiliency back to um, a smaller farm and access some of these other markets. So it's almost like this is the, this is the answer to the question that a lot of people haven't thought to ask yet, which is, where do I sell this regenerative grain, this regenerative heirloom grain? Exactly. And they haven't been getting the return on investment for the hard work that they've put in figuring out these practices all over the country for themselves. And, and we want them to benefit from all the hard work they're doing to fix the land and, yeah. and teach other people how to do that. And especially the consumers, which is why we're not interested in selling in the industrial food complex, because we're breaking out of the industrial ag system by doing regenerative agriculture in the first place. Then why do we want to jump right back into right. it? Right. Such a good way to look you at know, it. 
Well, and you know, Brian, you, you brought up the supply chain issues. If you look at even in the last two weeks, um, China just released the announcement that they're not going to export phosphorus out of their country until the end mm -hmm. of 2022. That's 49% of the phosphorus that we use in ag. And now there's shortages in fertilizer and shortages in chemicals and it's Natural gas even, prices are going record high too, which is, has yeah. downstream yeah. effects on fertilizer price. Yeah. So like our, our local suppliers are saying they may not even have liquid 32% nitrogen this spring. Okay. So that does validate. I've been hearing just expect your food prices to go up 30 to 40%. If not so more. Yeah. At least. They're, they're, talking, they're talking about a 10% reduction in world food production next year. And if you think that there's a direct correlation, you're crazy. If it goes, if our food production goes down 10%, food cost will go up well over that. Okay. Uh, there's, there, and there'll be people that can't get enough to eat. Like 10, 10% is a big deal. Like we don't, we overproduce a lot, but it's not that much. And we just came off of a shortage this year. So South America made half of their crop last year. Um, if you follow their reports right now, they're, they're, applying less fertilizer because they can't get it to actually apply to the crop at planting time. Um, you're looking at a shortfall in Ukraine on their wheat production. Um, China's already cutting back on their number of corn acres because they can't get the seed and chemical for it. And they're the ones making it um, as far as the chemical goes. So, you know, it's a coming off of a short year and know that you're going into another short year is, is a very bad scenario. You know, some of these other shortages, I can, I can wrap my head around like microchip shortage. Okay. I get that. Like any burps along that line have, have huge ramifications downstream, but phosphorus, it's like to get phosphorus and phosphates for fertilizer. That's almost something you can kind of dig out of the ground in a simple chemical process. And then you can apply it. Am I wrong there? That's, that's a general overview. Yes. It's, it's mined, it's processed and it's either in granular or liquid form. And then we apply to, you know, appropriately to the, to the type. So I, I start to wonder if the, where the bottleneck is, if the bottleneck is in production, like the, the, of the base resource or in the processing or in the shipping. The, the bottleneck right now is the global, the global um, power shortage. I mean, they're, they're looking at, you know, the natural gas that runs these plants that they're converting you know, the natural gas into ammonium, uh, you know, an ammonium nitrate, ammonium sulfate. Um, it, it really comes down to the, the global shortage of natural gas and um, crude oil has not kept up, um, you know, as people are finally, you know, essentially like we were talking about earlier, coming out of their homes and now gas is being used more than what it was a year ago and oil production hasn't kept up. So oil prices are going up and it's, it's just a simple fact of they don't have enough gas, you know, specifically in the UK, the report that came out two days ago, they have to choose between heating homes this winter or making fertilizer. And, you know, right now they have a little bit of food, but the one thing I've learned is hungry people are angry people. Um, so they're, they're going to have to figure out, you know, how, how are we going to maintain food production with less nutrient application and, for me on my farm, that's where the Haney test comes in. Um, we've, we've cut back dramatically on our inputs, utilizing a test as you know, simple as the Haney test. Yeah. Explain that a little bit. So how, how did a test tell you that, tell you that, did it tell you you're using too much? So, you know, being first generation farmer, um, 
all I knew about going into this was that you put seed in the ground and eventually you had something to harvest. Um, there have been so many valuable lessons learned in nine years. And the Haney test, if you pull a, if you pull a conventional state ran test, it doesn't matter what state in the country, Olson, Bray, Malik 1, Malik 2, doesn't matter. They only look at, at phosphorus and potassium in the test and they don't actually test for nitrogen. And if you do get a nitrogen test, a PSNT, it's only looking at nitrate nitrogen. And the thing about the Haney test is they found, you know, at least it may be more now, but at least 23 forms of organic nitrogen that are plant available. And so by me planting cover crops and having higher biology counts and more nutrient mineralization, the Haney test looks at all that. It, it's got biological indicators with the CO2 burst. It's got our food source for the microbes, which is the WEOC, the water extractable organic carbon. Um, there's so many different things on that test that I can look at at a farmer and make my nutrient recommendations off of that versus, you know, something that never happens on my farm. I mean, that was the big seller is if you're using hydrochloric acid as your concentrate to force covalent bonds apart to test soil solutions, it never rains hydrochloric acid on my farm. If and it then did, I'd be I'm, worried. Yeah. And then the first time I went down to Texas, like Liz was talking about, I think there's so many people that have made the, the, the journey down to Texas to meet her and Rick. And Rick's like, yeah, we use water and some root exudates. And I'm like, holy cow, my ground sees that. This is a test that would mimic what's actually in my soil solution. And, you know, that was my, that was my aha moment that, well, maybe we should give this a try. Who would have thought to use water, the universal solvent as a universal solvent? Yeah, yeah it, it's crazy. Yeah, that would be Rick. Likes <laughs> to keep things simple. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything else to say, say about, the, about the Haney soil test and the differences right now, Liz? Well, I know like one thing he touched on is um, nitrogen. So on average, it finds between probably 30 and 40 pounds of available nitrogen that we couldn't see before. And part of that is from the way it's extracted, but part of that is because also instrumentation has come a long way and soil testing has not come a long way. We're still using, or most labs are still using uh, anywhere from 60 to 50 year old methods and it hasn't advanced with technology. And, you know, people like to give the example, it's not, you're not carrying around a rotary dial phone with you everywhere you go anymore. So why are we still using these, these really old methods to measure stuff that's may or may not be there by the time you plant your crop? Yeah. You know what? We carry around pocket supercomputers and it doesn't rain hydrochloric acid. Yeah. That's the moral of the story. <laughs> <laughs> so Russell, have you like totally discontinued conventional soil testing is, or is that something you, you did a little bit more have you compared the results i guess is what i'm asking so the, the the moral of the story on our farm is we started with conventional testing and then i got introduced to the haney's and my district conservationist is probably been one of the best people that i had in my operation because he said don't stop don't stop the other testing use that to compare the two and we still pull the state sample. We still send some to private labs and we're pulling the Melix 3, which is what's used in our area. And every year <clears throat> for 200 bushel corn, they keep saying apply 250 units of nitrogen. And so there are fields that we do check strips in and we'll apply the university recommendation. 
and then I would send a, a sample down to Temple and, you know, utilize Rick's lab, or now we're going to Lance Gunderson at Regen Ag Labs, and we would pull a Haney test, and it said apply 60 or 80 units of nitrogen, and we would do that on most of the farm, and we were making 190, 200, you know, the best corn we've ever grown was 318 bushels an acre dry land, and the difference between applying 80 units of nitrogen and the 250 units of nitrogen was about six bushels, and if you look at the cost there, Yes, I made those extra six bushels, but I also spent $130 more an acre in, in nitrogen fertilizer. And that's not good for my pocket. That's only good for the fertilizer salesman's pocket. Um, and so, yeah, we, <clears throat> we still to this day actually still pull a conventional test to have those comparisons. And the yeah. big number that I think farmers should look at is if you grow a thousand acres of corn and you had the same handy results that I have, you could save over a hundred thousand dollars a year in fertilizer. A hundred thousand dollars. That's huge. Or spend it to get six bushels to the acre yeah, or, average. Yeah, or or spend that hundred thousand dollars to make an extra five grand. That's like the feed salesman coming to you and telling you this magic feed block will raise your conception from ninety-five to ninety-seven. Yeah. What what's the cost there, buddy? Well, it's 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 it is true. Everybody farms the farmer. When I started going to farm shows. And I went to this booth, if I used their product, it added five bushels. And if I went to the next booth, their product added six bushels and so on and so forth. And if you went to 40 booths like that at the Southern Farm Show and you used them all, you should be growing 600 bushel corn. And, mm -hmm. and essentially it's some of them work, but do they give you a return on investment? And if some of them do work, was it because your soil system, soil system wasn't functioning properly? Um, and I think that's where soil region comes in if we educate farmers. There's so many people out there that talk about soil health and talk about microbiology and talk about all the things in the function. And that's great. That's information that farmers need to know. But how many companies are out there telling you how to set up your drill, how to set up your sprayer, how to plant into this residue and terminate it? And, and that's where I think that we really have to, to educate farmers is the practical application of putting this stuff together so that they can have success with it and not just the theory behind it. That comment that you've made several times, people farming the farmers, love it. Probably going to be the title for the episode unless you say something even cooler than that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. It's absolutely true. You know, you, you drive to town and the tractor dealer's got a nice new building and a row of shiny tractors out front. The crop consultant guys, they're driving around in new vehicles. The irrigation folks, they're driving around in new vehicles. The farm credit folks. They're driving around in new vehicles and none of them would be there if it wasn't for the farmers. Yeah. And they're all those companies. And I know because I've worked for some, they're out there to impress investors and they're out there to impress the other industrial ag people. And where I found the failure is when I tried to tell these people, your, your largest commodity is the farmer that you're working with speak their language, learn about them, help them, and then you'll be successful. Those, that falls on deaf ears. And, you know, that's why I, I cleared all that. And now you're, you're also doing a lot of work helping regenerative farmers market product, right? Yes. Yes. So uh, Sarah and I, um, Sarah's running the e-commerce site and she's doing all the research on that. Um, we both work on the marketing side and, and how to speak to the consumer. 
and really also trying to help other companies how to speak to the consumer and understand the farmer. Um, what really is surprising is, is we can help to tell that message, but when we bring in like Russell or some of the other farmers to speak to them, they really start to get it. And, um, and, not, and not everybody will get it or understand it, but the people that do, those are the ones that we want to help succeed. So what are some of the tools that, uh, that farmers can use to help communicate what, to, to their consumers about their story of, of what they produce and why? Really, it's the personal story, in my opinion. And, and what I find interesting is that, and I, I did this even within the industry, is that farmers don't think that what they're doing is interesting. And they don't know how to tell that story or have the time in doing it. And, and most of them are very modest and, and don't really think that they're doing that amazing of things, um, but they are. And so as someone who grew up in the city, I can't tell you how much I love watching people on videos crimping ground. It is the most satisfying thing to watch on the face of the planet. And and actually, I like being an attractor and doing it. So it's, it's once people can see what other people are doing and learn about those practices, the more they're going to respect the, the farmers themselves and the products they get and the food that they're eating. They'll become healthier, more involved. And I think it just really builds the whole community to, to support the ag industry, not industry, but the ag farmer when you when you talk to new farmers, Liz, who are her maybe uh, I hate to say conventional background, but maybe not sold into the region, how does that conversation? Do you ever get pushback of of, of what you're doing or anything like that? Well, an example would be I uh, I messaged a farmer that I know here uh, locally and said, "This is what we're doing." I know that he has some specialty markets, but said, um, told him, you know, we're working with regenerative farmers. Are you growing your, your stuff regeneratively? We're going to have a mobile mill. And, and he just said, oh, that's neat. So okay. there, you know, it, it does fall on, on deaf ears. Yeah. I'm thinking about whenever, whenever Brian and I talk to, to just new, new ranchers, sometimes we have to figure out where they're at to meet them first for that conversation is like, okay, well, where are you at first before I just like try to sell you this Kool-Aid that I totally am into and I love, but I sometimes I have to give them little shots of Kool-Aid instead of just like the whole, uh, you know, gallon jug. Yeah, for sure. You have to meet people where they're at. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, and some of our best friends are, um, recreational tillers. And they've known us for 20 years and they still won't listen to us. And maybe that's just because they know us too well, but it just, uh, you know, some people just, just won't, won't want to hear. I was just going to say that I, I was a full-time fireman before I became a farmer. And I, I guess my saying when I go talk to farmers is farmers and firemen are creatures of habit. And we have had the wrong policies in place for probably the last 80 years. Um, we still have farm bill policies in place from the original farm bill in the 1920s. I think 1928 was the exact year. Temporary measures. And yes. And, you know, back then people were starving in the Great Depression and absolutely do whatever you have to do to make food. Um, and we've seen policy change even in here in the last five years, which are helping farmers. Um, some are good. Some are meh, not so good. Um, but it, it really 
honestly, to get a farmer to change, it's either social pressure or economical pressure. And they either are going broke in the model system or, you know, five or 10 years ago, you would have never saw anything about soil health or regenerative practices in a magazine or an awesome podcast by Brian Alexander, um, you know, or you know, that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I feel like the, the snowball is finally rolling down the hill and farmers are taking a look, whether they adopt all of the practices or even some of the practices, but at least there is a change and questions being asked. Because it's not necessarily like that there's a goal for regenerative agriculture or soil health. It's a journey. Like Absolutely. It, it's a journey and it's just, it's progress. We're always trying to make it better, looking for the next thing to make, make the system stronger, make a complex system that's, that's interdependent, but failure resistant. And, and that's the ultimate goal is, is build resiliency. I mean, climate change is real. It rains harder and faster, and then you don't get rain for a longer period of time or fertilizer may be unavailable or chemicals may be unavailable. And it's really just building a system that is resilient. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. And a big part of that is you got to reduce your inputs. You have to reduce your reliance on inputs because these days, you know, you don't know where any of these commodities are coming from or where they're going. And it doesn't take much to start some really, really weird things in the global supply chains as much as they're interconnected. So the I'm, I want to circle back to the mill trailer. How if you don't mind sharing like roughly how much did it cost to put together and how scalable of an operation is it? So as, as far as that's, that's one of the, I think Liz's trigger words is scalable. Um, (laughs) See the laugh. I knew it. Um, As, as far as, you know, how many farmers can we service? Um, If, if one person was to run this meal full time and that's 2000 hours a year of running time, we could do almost a million pounds of product out of one trailer. Um, and, and we really made it feasible to where it, it already used the infrastructure. So farmers have gravity boxes. They already have uh, gravity wagons or a dump truck for grain. And we built a four inch poly auger that comes out the side of it. And we can directly dump into that. We tried to make it less labor intensive to where we're not touching the product until it's actually in the bagging process and you know kind of streamlining that but yeah to do to do 800,000 to a million pounds a year per trailer that's a lot of farmers um that's a lot of 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 product that we could do over a a large area and and simply making it to where it could be towed behind a pickup truck instead of having to have a cdl's really it made the accessibility a lot easier to where you know a farmer can meet another farmer with it or um you know, it's, it's not restrictive on, you know, time of transportation. Um, it's, it's really not a loud process at all. So, you know, as far as the noise complaint, we could run this thing in the middle of the night and it's, it's quieter than a grain bin fan. So if a farmer's drying grain in a grain bin, um, nobody would even notice that, you know, we were there making a product. How, how skilled of an operation is it to operate? Grits and cornmeal would be the easiest to make. Um, and, you know, it depends on where you're at geographically. You know, they're not eating a ton of grits in Nebraska, I wouldn't think. Um, but down here in the southeast, um, if you don't have grits once a day, you know, they'll take your southern cart away from you. Um, but, you know, it you can change the parameters of the stone where you have a larger gap or a shorter gap to where we can make 
more grits than cornmeal or if we're in the midwest and they want more cornmeal we can tighten the stone down and make more cornmeal than grits um you know it the, the functionality of it is is not very hard the sifting of the flowers um it's not bad i think you could train somebody within probably two to three weeks on how to look at it how to how to understand how the process works i mean it's it's something that's definitely teachable um, to, to anyone who would be interested in, in actually being a part of the meal. We wanted to make it where I could drive it around and run it. Yeah. If that tells you anything. It's perfect. Everything should be easy to operate. Easy, simple, easy to drive around. And, and it's, it's, not, it's not super expensive. I would say, you know, to, to look at the return on investment, you know, for what it would be, you know, I would think, I would say in the ballpark of around, you know, $100,000, $150,000 turnkey, labor intensive, you know, machinery, electrical, um, you know, we may tweak it, we may change it at a later date, but, um, you know, to, to have that, I mean, a combine costs more than that, um, putting up a grain bin costs more than that, and those are things that, that run very short spans of right. a year and, and don't offer a, a large return on investment. We're not too far away from pickups costing that much. Oh, yeah, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. I have to share a story about grits from this weekend. So we made a big pot of grits with shrimp and we're in Idaho, just so you guys know. And there was probably eight 12 year olds there. And they were like, what is this? What is this? And then we made them eat it, made them eat a big, healthy portion of it. And we said, okay, in the South, we eat tongue grits. This is like the staple for them. And there were, there were some that really liked it. And there were some that just got that mouthfeel for the texture and it was, it was just interesting to see the cultural changes of kids who have never been exposed to grits and they're 12 years old. And I was like, okay, we need to start traveling with these kids more often because you guys are missing out on really good food. Well, the, the thing that gets me is people in the Midwest try grits for the first time and they try five minute instant grits and those aren't real grits. No, and they're right? Like, no, no. It's like, if you, if you're making grits in less than 20 or 30 minutes, then you didn't make real grits. Do they even sell those five minute grits in North Carolina or do they... They sell them, just nobody buys them. I, I think they sell them for the people that are on vacation from up north that are just traveling through. Um, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think anybody here locally buys that stuff. So, have you made grits from your own corn yet? Yeah, we've we've been making grits and cornmeal with our corn since uh, 2017. Um, we, I would say, 90% of our grits and cornmeal is the Jimmy Red or Bloody Butcher variety. We have Bloody Butcher and. To me, it honestly is the best grits I've ever had in my life. Um, most people don't even know that the heirloom grits that are like, if you make real heirloom grits on a stone mill, you're actually, you're actually supposed to wash your grits. Like people don't even know that that's a real thing. Like you put your grits in a bowl and run water in them and actually, like if there's rice. any, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and you actually wash them before you cook them and a little bit of salt and pepper. Um, I really don't even put butter in mine anymore. I mean, it, you can, but little salt and pepper in them things and it's good to go so you grow do you grow a lot of jimmy red we we grow a uh, bloody butcher we've actually um we're going to start growing jimmy red as well as bloody butcher um we have friends that grow jimmy red we're trying it out for the first time i don't think there's a major difference between the two the two varieties but we're going to see uh we grow blue hopi or blue hoppy is how you should actually say it um or Hopi, Hopi's actually how you're supposed to say it. Um, but we're going blue Hopi and, and reeds yellow dent. So you got some colorful corn. Uh, yeah. You know, 
I planted some Jimmy Red, and I think I got like three good years of it. I'm not a corn farmer by any stretch of imagination. I grow grass for a living, not corn. But uh, now we're looking forward to running some of it through our little hand crank mill and and getting some cornmeal out of it and and trying that. So that's cool. That's really cool. And I was going to ask you what the difference was between Jimmy Red and Bloody Butcher, and I I guess you you already covered that one for me. I I don't think it's much, but if you look at the difference between like yellow number two, if you look at the difference between like yellow number two corn, it's probably 9% protein. You go to like Jimmy Red or Reed's, or Jimmy Red or Bloody Butcher, you're up about 12 to 13%. And that blue corn, uh, we've tested it before and had protein levels up to about 15%. So maybe you could eat some blue grits for breakfast instead of taking that muscle milk drink before you go to the gym or something. I don't know, but. Oh, yeah. Blue grits. That's where it's at. That's the new, new hotness, new protein shake. I'm sure it tastes a lot better. <laughs> you heard it here first. In six months, it'll be on Joe Rogan. He'll be talking about eating grits, eating grits for the protein. <laughs> no, just kidding. So, uh, what uh, what have we left out? What have we left out that we're not covering today, Liz and Russell? I don't know. Do you have any other questions? Well, I not really. Do you have anything you want to ask uh, me or CK? Yeah, are you going to come up to Pratt? I'm definitely going to try. I've got a little trip up to Cheyenne, Wyoming scheduled right before that, but uh, should be back in, in plenty of good time. And I'm going to try to make it up to Pratt and see what the see you. Uh, Great Plains Regeneration. That means our good friend Jessica Nad. She's involved. Mm-hmm. So it's yes. always great to see her. And uh, it'll be uh, it'll be nice to see. Curious to see the turnout. See what kind of turnout, and what kind of response you get in that community. Yeah. Oh, and Jimmy Emmons is going to be there as well. Oh, Jimmy's a rock star. He's always yeah, cool. yeah. So the only, the only thing I that. can say, Brian, is uh, regenerative grains also make some pretty awesome uh, bourbon. Oh, really? Uh, I'm getting yes. a steal. Are you really? Well, my birthday's in a few days, so I told my husband that that's what he better get me. <laughs> well, if he gets you a steal, I'll I'll come by. Okay, we'll have to get a recipe from you or something. So yeah, we um. We, we partnered with Foothills Distillery back in 2013 and um, came out with the first bourbon in North Carolina since Prohibition with heirloom grains. Oh, that's amazing. And um, Okay, we're not done yet. Is, you got to tell us all about that. Now. Yeah. So, so uh, we've, we've been making moonshine and um, regenerative bourbon since uh, I think our official release on the bourbon was 14. And we've won, uh, you know, the 1712 spirits is the brand and we've won gold at the San Francisco world spirit award several times. We, uh, went up to New York city. Uh, it won silver up there and then the pandemic hit. So we didn't go back, but, um, I guess one of my dreams was to see a farmer owned distillery. And, um, that's one of our, um, that's one of our projects for this fall that Liz has been helping me with and Sarah that we're going to have farmers reserve distillery start up this fall. And, we're making bourbon. Yeah, we're making bourbon and uh, brown sugar bourbon, all different kinds of flavors of alcohol. Um, brown sugar any, bourbon is the bacon of bourbon. It's yeah. yeah we're I'm, I made it. I made it for I made it for Liz or uh, Rick's retirement present, and I think we're going to call it the bourbon of legends. Can you ship? <laughs> yeah, we we do ship. Um, the 1712 spirits is actually um, in 36 states, and we also sell online. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's something that, you know, has been fun, but I want to see something that's a little bit more um, farmer led as well. And we're looking at yeah. opening up distilleries in other states and um, farmers are investing in it. Um, 
we're we're going to get it open and going and see how it goes. That's like my dream is to have some type of event where it's focused on soul health and we have a host bar that's only regenerative drinks, you know? So we're Um, also uh, wanting to branch out into beer. So why I call that the bacon of bourbon is because I'm a craft beer snob and -hmm. that's all I would drink. And um, now all of a sudden um, I like bourbon too. So, but yeah. If you come, if you come to Pratt, one thing that anybody will tell you is I never travel to these speaking engagements without refreshments. So there will be samples. Perfect. Uh, for you, Brian. Just, yeah, just make sure, just make sure you show up. Just make sure you show up early because typically they go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll have to settle for smelling it. I haven't drank in over 16 years. Wow. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. But I hear about regenerative bourbon and it. I love the story. I mean, it's the world needs it. But you think about connecting, you know, communities, this is how you do it. Right. And, but isn't there a missing link in there? Like, don't we need somewhere to malt grain in between the, the milling process and then a brewing distilling process? We've, we've taken care of that as well. Okay. How? See the need, he fills it. (laughs) Um, so my farm actually works with Sierra Nevada brewery, um, and, two of the largest malt houses oh, on the east so coast. So you're you're close to Falls River then. That's where it's at? Uh Mills River, yeah. Mills, Mills River, River, yeah. Okay, so yeah. I'm from I went to school in Chico. So I'm from the original Sierra Nevada. Yeah. So Yeah. We um I don't even know how they got my name years ago, but they wanted to start growing these weird barleys. Um I started working with the Biltmore State on growing barley for their beer that they're selling. We work with them quite a bit. Um and I actually made a phone call to them today about uh, also working with us on this uh, milling idea. And, you know, I guess being involved with them and growing some of these weird grains just kind of put all the pieces together years ago for what we're doing now. And, and yeah, so we've got two of the largest malt houses in the East Coast within an hour of me in any direction. And um, we can take care of all of the malting. Um, the facility I'm in right now, if you can see, we've got a seed cleaner, gravity table, a mixing system, a bagging system. I mean, it's it's an entire place that we've built here that we we clean, we grind, um, we can do it all. I remember doing some. I remember doing some research into what it would take to get like a regenerative beer, all from Kansas. And the only thing that we don't have is is the malting pro is is a place to get grains malted here in the Midwest. I, everything I found was either on the East Coast or on the West Coast. So I think there are some malt houses there right now but it all depends on cost effectiveness right so and it's it's always cost effectiveness and a lot of what you know it always comes down to yeah we can grind it for a cheap price but you got to have a hundred thousand bushels or you know some exorbitant quantity of bushels and you know farmer can't necessarily always always successfully you know market that quantity himself we're doing it in ten thousand pound batches okay so that's that's pretty small scale Russell is like, definitely like, if you challenge me and tell me I can't do it, I'm just going to show you that we can. So definitely living up to, 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 that's amazing. Yeah. So if, if I call him and say, Hey, we need to make a, you know, regenerative beer all over the country. He's like, all right, well, let's do it then. Who we call first? Yeah. It snowballs. Well, I think that's probably a a pretty good place to end. We appreciate you guys joining us today. And uh, we left anything on the table. Come to our Facebook group, Ranching Reboot Paddock. Let us know. Any any Thank final you. thoughts, Liz or Russell? 
I, I appreciate it. It was nice to meet y'all. Yeah. Thanks for having us and look forward to seeing you soon. Yep. Yeah. Nice to see you guys too. You go. Have a great week.